Good morning. Uh, today we're uh, concluding our series. It's been a long series. It's been eight parts, I believe. And, uh, but the truth is we actually finished it last week. This week, we're doing a question and response, a Q&R. And the reason it's not called question and answer is because we don't have all the answers. So if I were to say, oh, that's a good question. That's a response, technically. <laughs> so uh, this, is, uh, this is how we're going to do it. Uh, Pastor Stan and I, we're going to be answering the questions. Some of you guys have ans- uh, submitted questions earlier, uh, last week. And so we're going to be answering those questions first. But if you have questions right now that you want answered, we're also answering those questions. And the way you're going to do it is by texting your questions to this number right here. Whose number is that? It doesn't belong to anybody. Uh, it turns out uh, that Google Voice just gives out phone numbers. And so uh, we won't know who the, phone, uh, who the phone numbers belong to because it's an anonymous number. So uh, if you're worried, like, I want to ask this question, but I don't want them to know that's me asking a question, um, this is a perfect number to text it to. Now, try to keep your questions short uh, because uh, we have the AV team over there who's going to try to type it up. And if it doesn't fit on the screen, then it's going to be kind of awkward because it'll, be, it'll get cut off. So um, that number will be up there um, for anybody who has questions to ask them. And we're going to cut it off at the 25-minute mark. So uh, ask away, because uh, I know for the past few weeks we've been talking about things. And for some of you, it's been just mind-blowing. Like, oh, I didn't know this about Christianity. Uh, so if, any, if you have any questions, feel free to ask those questions. So we're going to start with the first one, and we'll put it on the screen. Um, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is John 13, 34. If this is the main thing, then can you help us connect the dots to our why statement, experiencing heaven together? Uh, experiencing heaven together, uh, for, if this is your first time here, that's our vision statement. That's why we exist as an organization. And uh, I think I should kind of explain where that, uh, that vision statement comes from. The vision statement, uh, the word heaven in the Old Testament and into the New Testament doesn't really mean heaven in the way that you pro- were probably brought up to think of heaven, like this cloudy place with harps and angels and halos and stuff like that. Um, when we talk about heaven in biblical sense, uh, the heaven is basically a kingdom, we call it the kingdom of God. It's basically whatever God has complete control over. In the same way, if you chose what you're gonna wear today, that was your kingdom. You decide everything that happened in that realm, right? So when we say that we want to be part of God's kingdom, we want to be part of heaven, what we're saying is we want to be in a world where God has complete control over it. And what that is is basically a a world where love reigns, a place where there's compassion and love and no more tears and all that kind of stuff. And so when we say we want to experience heaven together, sure, we're also talking about after you die, you go to heaven. But more importantly to us, we want to make sure that we're being a part of God's kingdom and bringing that heaven here and we put the word together because we believe that we don't do that alone, that we have to do it in community. Did you want to add anything? That's pretty good. Um, oh, I, I would just... Uh, oh, it's not on. Oh, there we go. I would just say experiencing is a, is a part of love, that you have to experience it. Heaven, uh, as Kat said, it's actually where, where God dwells, and love is, is described as who God is. God is love. And together is that God loves us individually so that we can love each other. So for me, the experience in heaven together and the uh, love one another are kind of the same. 
Mm -hmm. uh, I think experiencing heaven together is a, a descriptor of uh, our thing of uh, love one another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and just to be clear, love, I mean, we come to church every Sunday to receive instructions from the scriptures because we believe that love isn't just pleasing the other person. Um, love is this whole world of complications of <laughs> like, um, what's the line between loving somebody and enabling them to continue the lifestyle that you know, they're living that's not healthy for them, right? Sometimes there's something called tough love. So there's a lot of different aspects to love. You know, if you think love is like, just comes naturally to you, a lot of times it doesn't. And that's why we talk a lot about love and we look to Jesus as our ex example of what love is. So yeah, whoever sent that in, good question. Uh, next question, here we go. Judas, come home, all is forgiven. Can this be true? Do you want to start this one? Yes. <laughs> um, all right, okay. <laughs> you know, uh, there is a uh, thinking that somehow if we create our reality to be so bad that not even God can reach into that reality. And the truth is, there's no place, the Psalms say there's no place that God does not exist. And so no matter how bad your situation is, and uh, the example of Judas is one where he uh, betrayed Jesus and, and reached the point where he felt there was no hope. He went to the so-called church, the synagogue, right? And they said, that's your problem. We, we can't do anything about it. And he felt alone and he killed himself. There was still an opportunity for him to come to know, to come back to Jesus. Because Jesus knew from the very start what he was going to do. But he chose him. And he stayed in a relationship with him. So I don't know if this question is because you're the Judas, but if you are, I'm here to say that yes, you can come home. In fact, your, God's desire is for you to come home. And he is not a God who is out to revisit your past in terms of condemnation, but to establish your present and your future as a place of hope, a place of restoration, and a place of love, mm -hmm. and to experience heaven together. Yeah, um, a few years ago, there was a book written by uh, a professor of theology. His name is Ray Anderson. He wrote a book called, it's a fictional book. It's, it's a book called The Gospel According to Judas. Not the Gospel According to Judas, but you know, this, it's a fictional book. And he basically creates this dialogue, this fictional dialogue between Jesus and Judas. And eventually, the Bible tells us that Judas eventually hung himself. He killed himself because he had so much guilt. And in this book, he explores this question of can Jesus and did Jesus forgive Judas? So like I said, this is fictional. But he created this story to give us an idea of the heart of what was happening in the story. And um, yeah, Judas and Jesus are talking. And Jesus says, you know, um, hey, no matter what you did to me, you're forgiven, you know. And Judas, for some reason, he couldn't accept the forgiveness. So it's not so much that God is condemning people. It's that a lot of times, as human beings, sometimes we have a hard time accepting that forgiveness. 
Um, and that book is really interesting. Uh, the kindness of Jesus was a thing that was really irking Judas. Like, how could you love, just punish me so I feel better about myself, right? Or so I could at least pay the price that I was supposed to pay for, for betraying you. And Jesus is like, no, um, I paid the price for you. And it just rubs him the wrong way, and he's so guilt-ridden that he eventually kills himself. Again, this is a, a very, uh, this is a fictional story. It's in the imagination of a theologian. But I think it dem- demonstrates the compassion of God um, and our unwillingness to accept sometimes that, that forgiveness from God. And maybe even uh, where we are all like Judas, mm-hmm. that maybe we feel like we have to make up for past mistakes, things that we regret doing. And Grace says that, that God is not in the business of trying to look back in the past and change the past, but is in the business of taking your present and moving toward a greater future. So, so God is not a God of the past. He's a God of the present. And uh, so, yeah, I would, I don't know who, like, we, we don't know who wrote this, but um, the, the key part is guilt can make us feel alone. <laughs> and that is the biggest lie of the enemy, that even when we're guilty, God is there. And so the invitation is to, first of all, get together with God. But if that's not possible, uh, I would invite you to find someone you can trust, someone who's safe, and allow them to help you come to know God. And if, if you need a safe person, I'm a pretty safe person. he's very safe (laughs) (laughs) you know I just just don't want you to to ever wind up where Judas was Mm -hmm. in feeling like you're all alone and there's no one to help you Mm -hmm. because as long as you have breath in in this world it's God's invitation of saying I want to help you Mm -hmm. come home yeah Yeah, no matter how far you feel like you're away from God it's only one step away from jumping back in with him. So, yeah, great question. Um, I think in, to some extent we're all Judases, right? All right, third question. In light of what was shared during the previous sermons, how then should we regard the Old Testament? Uh, a few weeks ago, I, I preached about the role the Bible should play uh, in our faith, in this Faith 2.0, and that um, we can't go on living as like, is this a sin? Is this not a sin? What does the Bible say? If the Bible says that you can't do it, then it's a you know, right? And I said that's a very Old Testament way of thinking. Um, so the question is, what role does the Old Testament play in our faith now? And uh, I think when it comes to Old Testament, I, I think the question is specifically pointing to the laws. Old Testament has great stories. By the way, I love the Old Testament. My top two favorite books is Genesis and Exodus. So, you know, I love the Old Testament. I don't want to disregard it. Uh, but the Old Testament, I think we're talking specifically about the laws. I said that the laws shouldn't be followed in the way that they were, they were followed. In the, and I'll give you an example. And, and so I typed up a, a, one of the strange commands. By the way, this command is a little PG-13-ish. So I hope you guys are okay with this. But this is how this one goes. If a man takes a wife and after sleeping with her, dislikes her and slanders her and gives her a bad name, saying, I married this woman, but when I approached her, I did not find proof of her virginity. So this is 
a law that you find in the book of Deuteronomy. And the scenario goes like this. Guy and a girl gets married. Guy sleeps with lady, and guy doesn't like it. He doesn't enjoy it, and he wants to return. You're like, I, I don't want her anymore. But how can I return her? Because there's a law that says I can't get a divorce. Oh, I know. I'm going to uh, say that she was not a virgin. She is basically used goods. That's how they would, you know. And so I want to return her. That's, that's the scenario that this law is setting up for us. Next verse. Then the young woman's father and mother shall bring to the town elders at the gate, that's the most important people in the town, proof that she was a virgin. Her father will say to the leader, elders, I gave my daughter in marriage to this man, but he dislikes her. It's like, hey, my daughter is innocent. She, you know, she wasn't defiled before marriage, you know, that kind of stuff. This is really old school, right? But just follow with me. It's like, I have proof. And the way that they show proof is, is through, well, you'll see in a second. Now he, sla now he slandered her and said, I did not find your daughter to be a virgin, but here is proof of my daughter's virginity. Then her parents shall display the cloth, so that's how they prove it, uh, before the elders of the town, and the elders shall take the man and punish him. How do you punish him? Next verse. <laughs> they shall find him a hundred, uh, find him a hundred shekels, which is a lot. It's like a whole lifetime's work. Like, so every paycheck you get from now until the day you die, that's like a hundred shekels right there, of silver and give them to the young woman's father because this man has given an Israelite virgin a bad name. She shall continue to be his wife. He must not divorce her as long as he lives. Now, this is a law in the Old Testament. Should we act this out today? And, you know, should I be the, the, the elder at the gate? I mean, is that like, how do you do that, right? No, no, no. This is how, so when Jesus showed up on the scene and said, guys, the Old Testament is old news, okay? He wasn't saying, let's disregard this law. He wasn't saying that. He also wasn't saying, let's keep doing this stuff. What he was saying is, when you look at the Old Testament laws, you have to use it in a different way than you used to. And the way you use it is, from reading this, what does it reveal to you about humanity? And what does it reveal to you about God? So you read this and you're like, well, I don't know, I don't, want to do, I don't think we should do this today, but this does tell me that God does care about women. Because back in those days, women were property, and if the guy didn't like the woman or she, he found fault in her, then he'll find a way to dispose her, right? In this law, it protects the woman, right? It says, if, if the guy is lying and treating this woman like trash, then he must, A, marry her, and, and then he has to be poor for the rest of his life because he has to give 100 shekels to um, his in-laws, right? So this is basically God's heart. The God's heart is he cares about every human being. If the woman has been treated unfairly, then the man must be punished. Do you have to punish him in this way? No, right? What Jesus is saying is you have to look at the heart of the law. What does the heart say? What does it say? What does it tell you about who God is? What does it tell you about what humanity is like? Right? So that's how we use the Old Testament laws now. We don't use it as, well, it says you're supposed to do this. I'm supposed to stone somebody because they ate shellfish. Okay, you know, right? Um, you don't do that anymore. Uh, the way we use the law is to discover the heart of God and the heart of humanity and see how, it, how they work together. Are you good? Yeah, okay. Uh, I, I just thought of this, this passage in Galatians. Cots uh, mentioned Galatians as uh, freedom as the uh, theme. And Paul writes this. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that was able to give life, 
then righteousness would certainly come by the law. But scripture has imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So what Paul is basically saying is law does, can't make you righteous. And if you look at the nature of a law, the nature of a law will just tell you when you're bad, but it won't tell you when you're good. So to me, the, the nature of the Old Testament was to, to show people where they were falling short. And so, yes, that's, that's valuable, right? And it, to use Costa's example, Faith 1.0 is like being uh, when you first have an infant, you, one of the first things you teach that infant is the word no, right? And the, the word no is not what you want the infant to do, it's what you don't want the infant to do, right? And that's, so the law will tell you what you shouldn't be doing, but it will not necessarily tell you what you should be doing. Mm -hmm. And that's where love comes in, right? Because love is a combination of both. It's a combination of, of showing you what, you what is not healthy, but also telling you what is healthy. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, the Old Testament is not to be thrown out, but because even as an adult, you need to understand what no means, right? But it's also not the way we live. We don't live in, in trying to figure out, well, what shouldn't I be doing? But we've, we live on what we should be doing, the yes. Yeah. It's very good. Very good question. You use the Bible. That's, that's not fair. <laughs> no, actually, I had the Bible up there. Yeah. yeah. All right. You use Paul. Paul has all the answers. Okay. Uh, next question. We are called to love others but how should we cope with toxic people in our lives? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think God's mentioned it, right? Love is, is, there's what's called tough love, right? And tough love is that <coughs> poison has a design, right? Toxic poisons have a design to kill things that are not healthy, okay? But when you're healthy and you take something toxic, that makes you unhealthy, right? So with a toxic person, I believe that we love them, but we don't drink their poison, right? We, we acknowledge where they are, we recognize them and where, where they're coming from, but we don't drink their poison, right? And what that means is that we need to pray for them. We need to be able to set boundaries and keep ourselves from getting sucked into the way they do things, right? And, and we need to be doing the things that we know are the yes, mm. right? Not the no. So I would say that the way to cope is we uh, also have people who are not toxic in our lives. And we have people who can, help us identify the toxicity and to be able to help us navigate through it and basically help us love the people who are toxic. God loves toxic people. I'm a toxic person because I have sin, but God loves me. God doesn't ignore my sin, but he's not always in my face about 
you're so toxic, right? But he's dealing with my sin. And so, so I believe we can, um, we don't have to shut ourselves off from them, but we have to be aware of it and not be, uh, it's like radioactivity, right? <laughs> radioactivity is, has great uses, but if you go into a radioactive place not protected, you're gonna get killed, right? When you go into a toxic situation, you want to be sure that you have all your own self-protected. Yeah, uh, just picking back on that. Um, if you look through the scriptures, the Israelites in the Old Testament, the Israelites were the people who were supposed to be agents of change. They're supposed to go and love the people around them, uh, bring heaven on earth to the, the, to the tribes around them. But the problem is that they ended up being toxic because they were hanging out in Egypt too long. And they started picking up on their culture and then the Babylonians took over and then they started picking up on their culture and they didn't know how to love the people around them. And so God is looking for healthy people to love on the people around them. And uh, we see Paul in the New Testament really ad addressing this issue. When there's somebody in the church who's being more like, who's spreading poison, right? He would say you have to, sometimes the loving thing to do is to cut them off. Um, and for people who, if you are that person, you can't see how loving that is. Paul sometimes goes as far as to say, like, sometimes you have to give him over to Satan, <laughs> right? And basically it's like somebody, sometimes they have to hit rock bottom, and sometimes that's the loving thing to do, even though it doesn't seem like that from the other perspective. Um, in order to preserve the mission that we have from God, which is to love the people around us, we have to keep that venom from seeping into the community. So um, love sometimes looks really harsh, and... Um, love doesn't always mean that you're going to give them what they want. You know, sometimes it means you have to cut them off. Uh, so yeah, love is, has a vi wide variety of, of angles, I guess you could put it that way. Yeah. Great question. <laughs> Ooh, next one. How do you say, uh, how do you stay in constant conversation with God? Um, this is like a whole series. Not just a sermon. You guys got two hours? <laughs> uh, let me see if I could uh, give a quick one. Um, prayer. <laughs> um, I think different people have different temperaments. People connect to God, with God in different ways. Some people do it through prayer. Some people do it through like morning devotionals. They read the Bible every morning. Some people, when they serve, they feel like they're in constant communication with God. Uh, some people, when they feel uncomfortable, they feel like they, need, they talk to God more in that situation. Everybody's different. That's why I said it'll take a whole sermon series to address this issue, uh, this, this question. Um, one answer doesn't, isn't for everybody, and every, you have to discover this for yourself. For some people, singing songs at church with your peers, that's how you feel like you're in constant conversation with God. Um, yeah, you want to add anything to that? Let me just add my personal way of staying in contact with God is having an awareness that he's there. So not necessarily talking to him, but just being aware of his presence. And the second way is to remember how much he loves me and to remember that um, he just wants to be with me. It's not a matter of me doing something for him. It's not a matter of me uh, even talking to him necessarily, but just being able to have an awareness of his presence and, and a desire to be in his presence. And so to me, uh, you know, 
when I'm talking to with someone, I could also be talking with God. Because each person represents an image of God, right? So, so you know, I think uh, it's, like God says, it's a matter of your own personal style and, and things. But what it comes down to is having a relationship with God and having that relationship, having an open connection, and having that connection always being utilized, that you're always aware of it and it's flowing through you. So, but that is a great question. It, it would take a certain <laughs> Yes, great question. Okay, maybe one more. Is that okay, Alex? From the series, what do you think is the main hope for us? Uh, the main hope uh, for us is that no matter who you are, where you're from, what your background is, the mistakes you made in the past, that God loves you, no matter what. Even if you're Judas, God loves you. And because of that, hope that we have in Christ, um, we have to offer that same hope to the people around us. And that means we're gonna love the people around us no matter what. And that's the main point of the series is that by our love for the people around us, that is our worship to God. Um, the greatest form of worship that we could give to God is the act of loving the people around us. It's one and the same. Love God, love others is not two separate commands. Jesus kind of fused them together and said, that's the only thing. So the hope that you received through people or from God is the same hope that we're supposed to give to other people. That's the main hope uh, for this series. Um. Um, maybe we can do this last one. This oh, last okay. Uh, so. Pastor Cott spoke on an understanding of the, bi understanding the Bible and how our faith is now not about proving the Bible is true, but how should we reconcile questionable things in the Bible? Uh, for example, seven-day creation, people living for hundreds of years with what we know from science. Mm -hmm. <coughs> the, uh, I think what Pastor Cott said was that uh, science and the Bible are not incompatible, that there are ways in which we can uh, come up with the uh, understanding of both things, that, that maybe our understanding of the Bible and maybe our understanding of science are not complete, and that there's, there's a way to, to bring the two together. Um, I, would, I would say this. God's desire for you, the, well, let me put it this way. The world's desire for you is to doubt your beliefs and believe your doubts. That's basically skepticism. God's desire for you is that you believe your beliefs and doubt your doubts. And so that is a attitude of optimism. So I would say if you have a question like this, that, that you, there's a lot of research on it. If you want books, I can give you books. If you want to talk to me about it, I can talk to you. But I'm not going to be able to, to convince you, okay? What, what's going to have to happen is you're going to have to be able to identify what is it about the, this issue that really bothers me. And maybe what really bothers you is you're having trouble believing your beliefs mm. and you're doubting your beliefs. And, and so that's where we need to start, mm. okay? So uh, I think that's a really great question because it's apologetics and that's what I studied, <laughs> okay? So that's why I wanted to do it.
Yeah, and uh, if you want to learn more, um, in the same way that science is advancing every year, every day, um, biblical studies and scholarship is also advancing every year, every day. And uh, about 20-some years ago, um, people discovered that maybe we've been reading Genesis wrong, um, the seven-day creation. Um, maybe we should look at it more from the perspective of the people who received the, the writings thousands of years ago. How did they read it? How did they understand it? And so I know you gave some examples like seven-day creation and so forth. Those things uh, are not meant to be scientific claims. Um, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis chapter 2 is an ancient Hebrew poem. Um, in the same way that you would say, hey, look, the sun is rising, that's artistic language, right? We know that the earth is the one that's revolving around the sun, right? But it wouldn't make a good song. You know, like, ooh, yeah, baby, you know, um, look at the earth rotate around the sun. You know, it's not romantic. Um, it's artistic language. And this is poetry. Genesis chapter 1 is poetry. So seven-day creation is supposed to be a callback. I'm about to get nerdy here. It's a callback to the temple system of the Old Testament. And usually it takes six days to, to, um, to prepare the temple for worship. On the seventh day is the day that God comes in and rests in that temple. And the writer of Genesis 1 is basically saying that the earth is God's temple. And it, it, if you don't understand what I'm saying, um, I'm just saying that science and Bible doesn't really contradict each other. And if it does, then maybe either we're misunderstanding science or misunderstanding the Bible. And I, from my experience, a lot of times we're misunderstanding the Bible. Um, not all the time, but most of the time that's what I've discovered. Um, so if you want to learn more about that aspect of apologetics, you could talk to me. If you want to talk more about everything else, you could talk to me. <laughs> um, okay, so we're out of time, but how many more questions do we have? Just one. Okay. Is it okay if I keep you guys in for five more minutes and we'll do one more? Is that okay? Okay, last question then. How can we as Christians help or reach those who are nuns or even atheists as we come across them in our daily lives? Okay, the role of a Christian is not to convert people. The role of a Christian is not to convert people. Your job is not to go to somebody and say, would you like to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior today? No? Okay, next door. You know, right? Like, <laughs> that's not our role. I don't see Jesus anywhere in the New Testament, Jesus saying, make sure you pray the sinner's prayer with every single person you come across. What I do see him saying is be a light in a dark world. Love the people around you. Love your enemies. Um, I think uh, since the early 1900s, the United States, this is kind of church history, early 1900s, Christianity kind of shifted its focus from loving the people around us to let's see how many people we could save. Um, all of a sudden, hell became like the number one fear of Americans because World War I and all that kind of stuff was happening. And, um, and it, by the way, it was only in America that was happening. Was, like, even today, if you go to like England, they always say, why are American Christians so obsessed with hell? <laughs> and who goes there and who's not there and who's there? You know, who's, it's only in this country that we're really obsessed with that. Um, I think the way that we could talk to atheists and nuns is by just loving them. Maybe, you know, that's what Jesus told us to do, love them with everything that we are, with our hearts, with our minds, with our souls. And maybe through that, they'll come to see our perspective on certain things. But even if they don't, we should continue to love them. Like, there's no strings attached. Um, one of my pet peeves of Christianity culture is that we kind of do this bait and switch thing. It's like, hey, come to a movie night. It's like, ah, I got you. This is actually an altar call. You know, like, I, I, I don't like that. 
because I want to make sure that when we love people, we're not doing with strings attached. We're loving them just because what? Because of the hope that we have, that God loved us, and therefore we should love them. Um, so in our conversations with atheists and nuns, we're, our job isn't to convince them that they're wrong. Because who wants to hang out with people who always convinces people are wrong, right? Our role is to love them. And it takes a lot of maturity to love people who disagree with you. But as Christians, we're supposed to be experts at loving people <laughs> that disagree with you, because that's what Jesus did. But sadly, I don't think that's the culture we live in today, that we care more about getting people to agree with us than just, you know, loving them. So I know that's a little controversial, uh, but that's faith 2.0. That's the mature version of Christianity, where we aren't so concerned with getting people to agree with us, but we're more concerned about making sure that everybody's treated right. I would just add to be the person that God made you to be. That uh, as God's life lives in you, that is what's going to be attractive to somebody else, is God's life in you. And God's life, not you. Okay? So. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Pastor Stan. Um, yeah. You're good. Yeah. So I have a short. And when I say short, it ends up being long. <laughs> I have a short uh, concluding uh, a few thoughts. So uh, in the book of, in, in the New Testament, there's several, you know, there's the four biographies of Jesus. And then it takes you into this next book called the book of Acts, which we'll be going over like in 2020 or 2021. As soon as we finish the book of Luke, it's going to take a while. Um, but I'll give you a quick preview because this is really important. This is probably, I want to share my heart with you about where I want this church to go. Um, so in the book of Acts, you know, Jesus rises again, and then there's a group of people, the 12 disciples. Well, Jesus, Judas died, but they brought somebody else in, so there's 12 of them again. And they're talking about what does God want us to do? We're starting a new movement. What are we supposed to do with this new movement? And as they're talking, they talk and talk, and they talk about what Jesus taught them, and, but they really don't do much. As, as a matter of fact, for 15 years, they really don't do anything because Jesus told them to go and love people, not just the people in Jerusalem, that's where they were, you know, not just Judea, which is the next town over, but to the ends of the earth. And they couldn't do that for 15 years. And the reason is because these 12 people are Jews. And these Jewish people, they grew up thinking, we don't want to mix with the people around us. And so that's what kept them in. So Jesus presented to them a faith 2.0, but they stayed in 1.0 because of that one barrier, which is the way that was brought up makes me feel uncomfortable to do what Jesus called me to do. And that happened for a long time. And this part I'm making up, this is my story in my brain, okay? So I could see Jesus 15 years later talking to his father in heaven. And the father's like, you know, Jesus, I sent you down there to do this amazing thing. By the way, thanks for dying on the cross and rising again. But um, they're not doing anything, Jesus. It's like, dad, I, I, I did my best. <laughs> it's like, well, we need to recruit somebody else. And so God is like, ah, how about him? And Jesus is like, Paul? Like, he's the one that's trying to end this movement. What are you talking about? It's like, no, but if he could be on our side, don't you think it's amazing? He's like, okay, you know, Jesus, just go down there, make like a flash appearance, and then scare him a little bit, and then maybe he'll join us. And, <laughs> and that's what he does, basically, right? And now Paul, having experienced Jesus, is like, I need to change the way I live my life. I need to go out there and tell people about this love, about this new movement. Back then, they call it the way. Christianity was the title is adopted later. Um, and so he starts going into these places that are not Jewish. 
he starts telling people about the love of God. He goes, talks to the Greek communities. He talks to the Romans. You know, he talks to everybody. And as they're doing this, as he's doing this, and he actually goes to the synagogues that are in these places. He's actually going to the Jewish people. But every time he ends up in a town where there's Jewish people, he gets kicked out. And the people who are not Jewish, the Gentiles, are the ones who surround him. And so while he's doing this, meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, here's Peter. Like, man, we're not doing anything. It's been 15 years that Paul guy who's been trying to kill us is now doing what we should be doing. Maybe we should do something, right? So Peter, he goes out, and as he's doing this, he has these visions, and he starts, God convicts him, and he's like, okay, I need to do something. So he goes into a house of a guy named Cornelius who is not Jewish. This is the first time he's probably ever done this. So he steps in, and he's like, okay, I don't have cooties yet. And he goes in, and he sees a whole bunch of people there, a whole bunch of people who are not Jewish. And he has this amazing experience. So he rushes back to Jerusalem, and around the time he gets back to Jerusalem, Paul's back from his journey too. And they're all coming together and sharing what they experienced. And that's where we're going to pick up today, chapter 15 of Acts, verse 12. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas was Paul's traveling uh, partner, telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. Like, so Paul and Barnabas is like, you guys are not going to believe what happened. We were out there sharing this Jewish message because, you know, Christianity started out as a Jewish sect, right? But every time I preach it, the Gentiles are the ones who are like, we want to join, we want to join, we want to join. And then Peter is here saying like, oh my goodness, I had the same experience. God led me into this guy named Cornelius, his house, and God started working in amazing ways. Do you think God's trying to tell us something? And they're like, yeah, I think he is. What is he trying to tell us? Maybe God was serious when he said that we're supposed to go to the ends of the earth and allow anybody who wants to be a part of this to be a part of it. And so they started talking about it. Okay, what should we do? What should we do? How should we do this? And the one, num- number one thing that came up was, but there's these Old Testament rules that these Gentiles don't like. Particularly, if you're a male, you have to be circumcised. So just imagine, you're at church, right? You drop off your kids, you know, like, okay, go to Sunday school, you know, and your wife is like, let's go to church. And you're like, I'm going to stay in the car because I really need to think this through because I don't know if I'm ready to have surgery today, right? That's, that's basically what was happening. And so people were saying, maybe, you know, yeah, you, because, you know, Jesus was Jewish, maybe you have to become Jewish before you. And so they're, they're going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And eventually the conversation ended and then stands up Jesus' younger half-brother, James. This is what he says. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, that's Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name for the Gentiles. He's saying, it's not just Paul who had this story. Peter also had a similar story. So he concludes by saying this. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. He said, I know there's these Old Testament rules about how you have to get circumcised and all that kind of stuff, right? He's like, how about this? Let's push aside anything that is not the main thing and create a clear path for whoever wants to be a part of the church to join the church. Let's not make it difficult for people to find God. Now, where does this come from? Where did James come up with this idea? He came with this idea because he asked this question about himself. He asked this question, what does love require of me? What does love require of me? If I am supposed to be a loving person and that my call to worship God is by loving the people around me, what is the most obvious thing I'm supposed to do? I know, 
I'm going to push any hindrances out of the way so that anybody could come to God. That's my way of loving the people around me. And when James says that, he's actually not just saying this is what I truly believe. He's saying that this is also what the church ought to believe. In other words, what does love require of the church? That's you. That's me. If we are supposed to be people who are just loving, love the people around us, and that's our worship to God, how are we supposed to, like, what are we supposed to do? So we try our best to move anything that might get in the way, out of the way, without compromising the main, the main thing about Christianity, which is to love others as God has loved us. So we started this whole sermon series by talking about this. So there's a whole group of people, evangelicals, uh, 30 years and younger, 33 and younger, I think, now, um, the biggest group of people who are leaving the church nowadays, and they call themselves nuns because they're willing to leave the church, but they don't want to fully commit to atheism, N-O-N-E-S, nuns, right? And I said, there's a few problems with the church that we need to fix because it's not attractive to them anymore. The church seems like it's, it's coupled with politics, uh, like, you know, politics is also coupled with taboos that we're not supposed to talk about. Um, you know, up until like 50, no, let's see, about, about 60 or 70 years ago, people turned to the church when they were needed help. Today is the opposite. Today, people are like, I'm not going to turn to the church when, there's help, when I need help. As a matter of fact, I'm going to tell the church how they're misbehaving. Like, we're in a world now where the church is not the place that people turn to because we don't, we don't fit into society anymore because we're so stuck in our ways. But the only thing we should be stuck on is how we're loving the neighbors around us, how we're loving the people around us. When people say, why are you so loving? Why are you so selfless? Why are you doing all these things? Why are you so generous? You'll say, well, that's just the way I worship God. In the prior years, Faith 1.0, it's always been about, like, why are you so bigoted? Why are you so, so hypocritical? Why are you so all about rules, do's and don'ts? Why are you always like that? You know, and the answer to that is, well, that's because of, that's what the Bible says. And like I said, that's not how we're supposed to operate our faith. We don't live by because the Bible said so anymore. We're supposed to live according to because Jesus died and rose on the, from the grave, this is my act of worship. is by loving the people selflessly, unconditionally. When society looks at the church, they see a closed system. I don't belong there. I can't fit in there. When we read the scriptures, we discover that the Bible, uh, that the church is a place that people turn to and anybody, and whoever wants to be a part of it, is welcome, but I don't think that's the, the image that we portray to the society around us. And so my prayer for, for us as Westside Community Church is that we become a church that moves anything that's in the way, out of the way, so that people could come and get to know who the loving God is. Our role is to love the people around us, and everything else, let's just leave it up to God. Amen? All right, let's close in prayer.